And this is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship with the Lord. We always take a few moments of silent prayer, opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, if we confess, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. At the instant of our confession, we are restored to fellowship with the Lord. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can resume the spiritual life. It's under the filling of God the Holy Spirit that we are able to learn and comprehend the tremendous teachings, the doctrine that's in the Word of God. He is our teacher. He is the one who illuminates our mind to the truth. And He is the one by whom we walk in the spiritual life. So let's begin with a few moments of silent prayer. Father, we do thank you so much that we have you to come to, that you are a God who is ever-present in times of trouble, that we can come boldly before the throne of grace because of the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. Father, we pray for Isabel this morning and the surgery she has coming up and all of the complications that she has. Pray that you'd give the doctors wisdom and that they would uh, uh, be guided and directed and not... uh, uh, be guessing and that you would work in and through them to restore her to health. Father, we pray for us as we gather together as a body of believers this morning that we would be open, that we would be teachable, that we would have an attitude of submission to you, and that we would be able to concentrate and focus now as we study your word. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who indwells us and who fills us, who guides and directs our thinking, the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand the things of your word. We pray that we would be responsive to his ministry in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of things that every now and then I need to remind the congregation of in terms of a little little etiquette in a worship service. One thing that happens is that we're trying to work on is about five minutes before class begins is Grace is going to come up and start playing a little prelude music. That is a signal for everybody to pipe down. The purpose of we're here is to focus on God's Word, to think about doctrine, not just to visit. Although I don't have a problem with that, and that's good, and we all enjoy that. Sometimes the uproar is a little overwhelming and distracting right before we 
are to study God's Word. So once you hear the music play, it's time to just quiet down and focus. The other thing is that we need to, uh, we've tried several things to get people out of the downstairs arena prior to the kids starting their class. And that room, unfortunately, has to do double duty. Not only is that a place of uh, teaching for the kids starting at 1045, there has to be cleanup and a num- number of other things to take place. And so uh, un- you know, the, about the, the extreme position we're trying to avoid is to say, okay, nobody goes downstairs, close it, lock it. Nobody goes down there during the break. Everybody just stays up here. Uh, you need to remember to go down there, visit, whatever, but when those lights flash, it's time to evacuate pronto, post-haste, because otherwise we're just going to shut the whole thing down, and we don't want to go quite to that extreme. So, word to the wise, focus on that. Now, having said that, let's open our Bibles to the 15th chapter of John. John Chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. John 15 takes place after Jesus and the disciples have left the upper room. They are on the way from the upper room in town to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it is along the way that Jesus gives the discourse on the true vine. Now this passage is one of those controversial passages that we run into every now and then that is subject to some misinterpretation. Sooner or later, you're going to run into somebody who is going to try to teach you or who has been taught that you can lose your salvation. Now, the basic problem with any, any, the, the whole position that you can lose your salvation is that, uh, I know this isn't a politically correct term anymore, but I'm not politically correct if you haven't figured that out. God's not an Indian giver. I knew that would get a chuckle. God doesn't give things and take them back. That's what that term means. God's not going to say, okay, I'm going to give you the gift of salvation, and then, oh, 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 wait a minute, you just did something. Now I'm going to take it back from you. No, it is a permanent gift, according to Romans 8. Uh, 28 and 29, or 38 and 39, and a number of other passages in Scripture as we have studied. There are also some other problems that um, are typical of the interpretation of this particular passage, so we're going to slow down a little bit to make sure we, we understand it, because the spiritual truth that's here is just so rich and so important, because this whole analogy of the vine is to teach us about the believer's vital relationship and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ and what those benefits are. The focus of this vine analogy is to emphasize production in the spiritual life, what the passage refers to as bearing fruit. We've talked about this some in the Galatians series we just finished. In Galatians 5, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And I find there's a lot of confusion among people as to just exactly what Uh, fruit is and what fruit production is, so we're going to have to take some time to clarify that to make sure we understand what the Bible is talking about. So Jesus is using an analogy here of the vine and the branches and fruit bearing in order to communicate vital doctrines related to the spiritual life. John 15.1 we read, I am the true vine and my father 
is the vine dresser. Now, this is the seventh of what is referred to as the seven I am's in the Gospel of John. These are statements that Jesus makes regarding his person and his work. Some are analogies and some relate specifically to who he is and what he is to do. So we need to review this a minute. It's always important to understand the claims that Jesus Christ made. I am often amazed at the fact that when you sit down sometimes and talk with with uh, non-Christians and you talk to them about Jesus well, and ask the question, well, who do you think Jesus is? And they come up with all kinds of questions, but very few people say that Jesus is deceptive, that Jesus is evil, that Jesus is just crazy. Very few people uh, would ever say that. Normally what you'll hear is someone say that Jesus was a great prophet. He was a great teacher. He was a moral innovator. He was a spiritual guide and director. You'll hear all kinds of things, but they're positive. But Jesus made certain claims about himself that are profound. And he either is who he claimed to be, or he is not. If he is not who he claimed to be, then he was lying. If he was lying, he was either lying intentionally, which means he is a great deceiver and has deceived millions of people down through the ages, or he was self-deceived. If he was self-deceived, then he was not sane because of the claims he made. Now, we know from looking at the Scriptures, just the overall testimony of the Scriptures, the portrait that we have of Jesus, his words and his works, that these are not the sayings, these are not the actions of someone who is insane. Neither are they the actions of someone who is a deceiver. Someone who is deceptive, someone who is out to promote his own agenda. What we have is a picture of someone who has a unique destiny in all of human history. So let's review the seven I am's. John 6.35, Jesus said to the disciples, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. And when we studied this, we saw that what Jesus is claiming here is to be the sole source of life. Not just biological life, not just existence, but true life as God intended it. Jesus said in another place, I came not like the thief to destroy, but I came to give life and to give it abundantly. Because of sin, man is separated from the true source of life. He lives, he breathes, he has existence, carries out careers, pursues his own goals and has limited pleasures. But God says that unless man is in right relationship to God, he cannot understand what real life is as God intended. So Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who believes in me, that last phrase, it's faith alone. Notice he doesn't say, he who believes in me and reforms his life. He who believes in me and goes to church. He who believes in me and fill in the blank. He simply says, he who believes in me shall never thirst. Revelation, the picture is of the living water that flows from the throne of God, that this is the river that people come, drink freely from the river of life, where there is no cost. Salvation is free of charge. It is a free gift of God. It's not based on who we are or what we do, but on who Jesus is and what He did. The second I am saying is in John eight twelve. Again, therefore... Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. 
He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Light is revelatory. It's illuminating. It shines forth and shows the truth. And so Jesus is claiming that He is the truth here. He is absolute truth. He is the one who illuminates in the darkness of sin in the world. John 8.58 is the third I am saying, where Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. This was in the midst of a heated controversy with the Pharisees, and Jesus had referred to Abraham, and Jesus refers to the fact that he knew Abraham because he was before Abraham. And in the original Greek, you see the significance of this because when he says Abraham was born, he uses the imperfect tense of genomai, which means a past tense that Abraham came into existence. Genomai is the Greek word for coming into existence. So the emphasis is on the fact that in the past, Abraham came into existence. There was a point of time when Abraham did not exist, and he came into existence and he died. And Jesus says, before Abraham came into existence, I am. Ego a me. I am meaning that the present tense emphasizing his continuous existence, that Jesus Christ is the eternal second person of the Trinity, and he always existed. He doesn't say, I came into existence, or I was already in existence. He doesn't use that verb, genomai. He uses the verb, a me. And incidentally, if you recall, ego a me is the Greek translation of the name of God from the Old Testament. When Moses was conversing with God at the burning bush and said, when I go to your people, by what name are you, you called that the people will know that I've come from you? And God said, I am who I am. And the Lord's name in the Old Testament is a sacred tetragrammaton, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, which comes from the Hebrew verb, Hayah, meaning existence. And so when Jesus said, I am, he was claiming for himself all of the attributes, in fact, identity with Yahweh of the Old Testament. And the Jews understood that he was making that claim, for they immediately reached down to pick up stones to stone him, and he slipped out from the crowd. The fourth I am statement in John 10:7, Jesus therefore said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And we studied that, and we saw that there's in a sheepfold, there's only one way in and out. Jesus is claiming, as he will later, in a more picturesque form here, that he is the only way. He is the door for the sheep. In verse 9 he said, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. And there he claims to be the only way of entrance to salvation. And then going in and out and finding pasture is a picture of the Christian life, that the Christian life feeding on the Word of God is based upon a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Fifth I am sentence statement is in John ten eleven, where Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The Greek phrase there, the preposition translated for, is is huper, the preposition of substitution. Huper plus the genitive of advantage. He is a substitute for the advantage of the sheep. He will lay down his life as a substitute for the sheep. The scripture says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for us. 
He who knew no sin was made sin as a substitute for us. He died so that we need not spend eternity in condemnation. And the way to apply His death to our lives is simply to accept the free gift. As many as received Him, to them gave He the power to be called the sons of God. It is simple. The Apostle Paul said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The sixth I am statement in John 11:25, Jesus said to, this is to Martha at the time after Lazarus' death, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. Jesus is claiming to be the life. He is the only source of life. And the way to appropriate that eternal life is once again through faith in Christ. He is the object of our faith. Faith is non-meritorious. It has no merit in and of itself. All of the merit is in what is believed. And the merit is in Jesus Christ who did the work for us on the cross. And then the seventh I am statement is, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then, excuse me, I said seven earlier. We'll come to our eighth statement here in verse 15.1. I am the true vine. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In John 14.6, Jesus claims exclusivity. He claims to be the only way. He claims to be absolute truth. And he claims to be the life. Three separate claims. No one comes to the Father except through me. Christianity claims to be unique among all of the world's religions. All of the other world's religions based a relationship with God on some form of human works, human obedience, human morality. But the Scripture teaches that it is based upon Jesus' work and Jesus' work alone. And then we come to this passage where Jesus develops the analogy of the vine. He is the true vine, and it is the Father that is the vine dresser. Now, we have to understand the analogy of the vine. This is a metaphor. One of the problems that you run into often is when the Scripture uses analogies or metaphors or illustrations that people try to push things too far and you try to make every single detail in the story stand up and walk on two legs. And that's not true of of the use of analogy in any realm of illustration. You just can't make every single detail, you can't force every detail to mean something. So we have to learn how the vine analogy is used. First point, the vine here is the grapevine. The hills along the Kidron Valley outside of Jerusalem are covered with grapevines. And as Jesus and the disciples left the upper room and they're walking along the hillside, The hillside is covered with grapevines. Now, this isn't by chance. God has created the grapevine. God created the topography of Jerusalem. The fact that it is a perfect area for the growth of the grapevine is not a chance encounter. God specifically designed things so that this event would take place and that Jesus would go by the grapevines and He would use this as an analogy of the believer's relationship to himself. Indeed, God is the one who created and designed the grapevine in order to teach certain things. This is the second point. 
God has supernaturally designed the vine to teach certain things about the Christian life and the Christian's relationship to God. It's not just for the purpose of producing grapes. The same is with the sheep. God created the sheep for a specific purpose so that he could utilize it as an analogy to teach certain things about the life of the believer. One thing we learn about the vine is that the wood itself is useless. You can't take a dead grapevine and then take the wood and burn it for heat. You can't use it to make furniture. You can't use it to make weapons. The wood itself is virtually useless. It's crooked. It does, it's good for only one thing, and that's producing fruit. The same way we could say the believer is relatively useless. He's not good in and of himself. He is good only because of what Christ has done for us and what he has supplied to us. And what we are designed for is the production of fruit. This is why we are saved, according to Ephesians 2, verse 10, that we are the workmanship of the Lord. We are designed to produce fruit. Point number three. The purpose for planting the vine is equivalent to salvation. The planting of the vine itself is equivalent to salvation, but you don't plant the vine just for the enjoyment of its growth, just to watch the leaves develop, just to see it sprout, just to see it grow. The purpose is in the end result, which is the production of fruit. Now, point four, only mature plants produce fruit. Immature plants are to continue to grow. Now, the implication for this is profound. Think about this. Especially when you think of analogies such as the, the uh, parable of the soils given in Matthew and in Luke. The purpose of a plant is to produce fruit, but a plant doesn't produce it till it's mature. I like to grow tomato vines. I like to fresh tomatoes. One thing I've noticed is it takes about 60 to 70 days from the time you plant the, the seedling or the seeds until you see fruit. Now, all during that time, you have to continuously nourish that plant. It has to be fed all the right nutrients under the right conditions, and then it absorbs all of that nutrition from the soil to produce fruit. The same is true about the believer. You don't really start producing fruit in your life until you are a mature believer. You see, a lot of times people think, well, I'm a Christian and I'm saved and they think they're going to start producing fruit right away. Well, first of all, they misdefine fruit. Most churches you go to, fruit is defined as coming to prayer meeting, having your daily devotions, reading your Bible every day, giving to the church. It's defined in terms of witnessing to so many people. All of this is defined as production, but the Scriptures do not define that as production. That is the function of your priesthood, giving, witnessing, prayer. All of that is a function of the believer's priesthood and is not related to fruit. When he talks about fruit, for example, in Galatians 5:22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit, the production of the Holy Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. Production of fruit is character. It is an inner transformation of the soul into the character of Jesus Christ. That takes time. It takes the proper nutrition. It takes the proper nutrients. 
It takes the proper feeding and handling. And what is that based on? It's based on two things. The filling by means of God the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. And the content of that filling is the Word of Christ, Colossians 3.16. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. 1 Peter 2.2 commands us to desire the sincere milk of the Word that you may grow by it. It is only by means of the Word of God that we grow. We don't grow by singing hymns. We don't grow by praying to God. We don't grow by evangelizing the lost. We don't grow by getting involved in all kinds of church programs. That has absolutely nothing to do with spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is the result of the right nourishment which comes exclusively from the Word of God under the filling of the Holy Spirit. So the believer is like a plant. He puts his roots down in that soil of Bible class, week in, week out, listening to tapes over and over again so that your mind becomes saturated with doctrine and your soul absorbs those spiritual uh, nutrients. And the result of that is growth. It's slow. It takes time. It may be imperceptible to you for a while. But the Holy Spirit... If you are filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is working in your life, and over time, transformation takes place. When you grow to maturity, then you see the fruit. But fruit production, for example, using the analogy of a plant, uh, I'll start seeing, after maybe 30, 35 days, I'll start seeing the buds. That's not fruit. That produces fruit. I got a discussion with a guy not long ago. We were uh, in one of the theological meetings. We were arguing about the Luke passage and the parable of the soils. And I said, well, the second soil in that passage, the one where the seed falls on hard ground, but it, does, it is willingly received and it puts forth a, a sprout, but then it is choked out by the cares of the world. He says, he said, well, that, how can that be a believer? I said, because there's germination there. There's life there. I said, if there's life there, if you put seed in the soil and it begins to put out a, the green shoot, there's germination, which is regeneration, and then there is growth. He said, well, that's fruit. I said, no, 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 no. You don't understand anything about agriculture. The fruit doesn't come for 60 to 90 days. Don't confuse the leaves and the stem with fruit. That's growth. That's the immature believer going from infancy to maturity. So that's point five. Fruit must be distinguished from the growth of the plant, its stem and its leaves. Fruit is the end result. You have to be mature. I'm amazed. How many times when you were growing up did you think, I can't wait to be an adult? Life begins when I'm an adult. I can't wait to do what I want to do and not have my parents tell me what to do, not have teachers tell me what to do. I want to be an adult and I want to be treated like an adult. The ironic thing is that 99.9% of Christians in this country want to stay in the spiritual nursery. How do you know that? Because they only show up once a week. They never read their Bible during the week or listen to tapes. They are convinced that if they just suck on that bottle once a week, that that's enough. Dr. Rodmacher, who's now the Chancellor of Western Conservative Baptist Seminary, often commented, I love his comment, that the evangelical church in America is the largest nursery in history. 
No one in the nursery has a vision for, has a desire to become an adult and to leave the nursery. And no one running the nursery has any vision for how to get them out of the nursery. That's the sad state of affairs. And when somebody comes along who wants to teach something beyond pure pablum, most basic of basic doctrines, then what you hear is a lot of bleats from the sheep that, oh, it's too heavy, it's too deep, I'll have to think. Let's just have something simple, that's over our head. You really need to be teaching in seminary, which shows they have no concept of what goes on in classrooms in seminary. Seminary is from the word seed seminal. You know, you don't get stuff like this in seminary. You really don't. You just get basic concepts and tools so that you can get into the Word and a pastor can study. It's a training time. It is not designed to get into deep, deep doctrines. That's where, if you don't get it in seminary and you don't get it in the local church, where are you going to get it? There has to be a vision for moving people from spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood. And the sad thing is that that I find that so rare to find anybody who's got a vision for it, number one, and number two, any idea of how to do it. But the Scriptures are clear. It's from the Word of God. So it is only mature plants that produce fruit. Immature plants are to grow by means of the Word. Fruit must be distinguished from the growth of the plant, its stems and its leaves, and then sixth, the quality of the fruit is dependent on the nourishment of the plant. What is nourishing your soul? What is it that you are spending time absorbing into your soul? Is it the human viewpoint concepts of the cosmic system? Or is it Bible doctrine being transformed? Not being conformed to the world, the cosmic system, Romans 12, 2, being transformed by the renovation of your thinking, the study of God's Word. Now, when we come to John 15:2, we read, Every branch in me, that is every branch in Jesus, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. He would refer to God the Father as the vine dresser. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. Now, if you're perceptive, right away you see we're going to run into some uh, interpretive problems in this particular verse. So we have a major interpretive problem to resolve, and that is, what does it mean to take away, to not bear fruit? What what happens to this unfruitful branch? There are three ways that this is handled. First of all, some say that unfruitful means that this is merely a professing, but not a genuine believer. This is just someone who has said, well, they trust Christ, but they're not really a Christian. And so over time, there's no fruit in their life, so they're not really a believer. They just thought they believed, and they really weren't. So they're they're a false believer. Now, we've seen that the problem with that is that John nowhere recognizes that kind of distinction in the gospel. The second interpretive position that's taken on this is that the believers that are taken away... Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. The second position is that believers who are taken away are those who lose their salvation. They trusted Christ, but they didn't bear fruit. They didn't go to church. They didn't um, 
evangelize, witness, pray, give, transform their life, whatever it may be. Usually it's some kind of overt activity expressed in some sort of moral system, legalistic system. And if they didn't do that well, then they really weren't in me, so they lose their salvation. It's taken away. Third position is the one that I think is the true position, is that the unfruitful, is the, the unfruitful believers experience divine discipline. So we'll see it's a mistranslation taken away. The Greek word there is iro, which can mean to take away or to remove, but it also means to lift up. And in Israel, when you go out into the fields and you see the vineyards out there, the lower branches on the vine that may be weak are propped up by rocks so that they, by the elevation they are strengthened and then produce fruit. And that's the meaning of this particular word. It means to does not have to do with removal. There is removal in verse 6, which has to do with uh, the sin unto death to believers. They are still saved. They just leave this earth in a miserable experience under divine discipline. Unfruitful believers experience divine discipline in time and lose rewards in eternity. Now, in order to resolve these interpretive problems and to understand this, and so that we know what Jesus is talking about throughout this chapter in this vine analogy, we're going to have to stop and do some detailed word studies. Words are the substance of thought. Without words, we can't think. Words have significance and meaning. Jesus is going to choose His words carefully. The writer of Scripture says that every word is inspired by God. Every single word has significance. So, since the Bible was originally written in Greek and not English, we have to cross that language barrier. And not only that, but terminology that John uses differs somewhat from the terminology Paul uses or Peter uses. So we have to understand how this writer, under the filling of the Holy Spirit, uses his terminology. And then, after we look at these words and these terms, then we can understand what the significance is. If we just run past this and don't take the time to do the detailed work, then what's going to happen is everybody's going to call me this week and say, well, why did you say this? Number two, if we run past it, we run the risk of failing to interpret it correctly, and you have to interpret it correctly before you can apply it correctly. So if we run past it, we run the danger of false interpretation, and then it's just superfluous application. So we have to stop and look at some terminology here. And the first phrase that's important is, in me. Now, those of you who have been around a while know that the Apostle Paul uses a phrase that's unique to Paul called in Christ. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. Paul uses a phrase in Christ to refer to our positional union with Christ. It is a forensic or a legal term that is used to talk about the fact that at that moment of faith alone in Christ alone, the believer is united with Christ inseparably for all eternity. That's a legal concept based upon justification, which is a legal concept. It's not how John uses the word. 
John has something different in mind. In the Old Testament, let's ask the question, is this phrase in me, is this a general reference? In other words, is this just anybody who sort of identifies himself with me as a Christian, i.e. the professing church, or is this talking about a true believer? That brings us to a second question which we need to answer. When Jesus uses this vine analogy, because in me is in the vine, is this the same significance as the vine analogy that's used throughout the Old Testament in reference to Israel? For example, in Psalm 80, Isaiah 5, 1-7, Jeremiah 5:10, and other passages, Israel is identified as the vine. Now the problem with going back into the Old Testament is that it's a different context. Point number one. Understanding the problem. Point number one. Remember we have to distinguish between Israel and the church. They're two separate entities in human history. God has one plan and purpose for Israel and another plan and purpose for the church. Israel was a covenant people viewed as a whole which included both saved and unsaved. The church is just believers. It is the invisible body of Christ composed of only believers. So when Jesus talks about those in me, it cannot include unbelievers. First point. Second point. Neither the image of the vine nor the context of John 15 relates to the broad kingdom of God. Jesus earlier in Matthew 13 talks about the kingdom of God is composed of wheat and tares. This is the visible church that is composed of true believers and professing believers or unbelievers. It's a broad context, the wheat and the tares. But that's not the context of John 15. We can't read Matthew 13 into John 15. Third, In the Gospel of John, as we have seen in our study, there's no concept of true and false believer. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're saved. There's no concept of a false or pseudo-faith or a superficial faith or a disingenuous faith. There's just faith or not faith. Fourth, we conclude in me, therefore, cannot refer to some sort of subgroup of true believers as a, within a mass of professing believers. It's not just talking about, uh, it's not showing this, this false comparison of true and false believers. Fifth, the preposition in in the Greek, en, can have a variety of meanings, but when it is used with the personal pronoun like in in me, it describes a close rapport or personal fellowship. So what we're talking about, when Christ says, in me, he is talking about those who are in fellowship with me. Those who have a close personal relationship with me. He's not talking about salvation in this analogy. That's what I'm trying to get to. This is not an issue of salvation. It's talking about the fact that fruit bearing is the consequence of being in fellowship with the Lord. That's what it's all about. If you're not in fellowship, if you're not drawing your nourishment on a day-to-day basis from the Lord Jesus Christ, same concept we saw in Galatians 5, walking by means of the Spirit. If you're not drawing your nourishment from Christ on a day-to-day basis, there's no growth, there is no advance, there is no 
fruit bearing. And then finally, point six. Paul uses the phrase to describe the believer's position in Christ, that legal term. But John uses the phrase simply to describe intimate relationship. Let's see a couple of examples. First of all, John 10.38. Jesus says, But if I do them, that is referring to works, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Now see, it's possible to interpret that as sphere. That I'm in the sphere of the Father and the Father is in the sphere of me. But that would suggest, remember, look at the context. If I do them, that is, if I perform miracles. Okay, so the context is, is validation of Jesus' miracles and what they signify. If this is sphere, I'm in the sphere of the Father and the Father is in the sphere of me and it's simply talking about unity, then what that would mean is when the disciples performed miracles, it would necessarily indicate the same thing. And since we do not have an ontological or essential unity with the Father like Jesus did, that would be false. Therefore, I in the Father and the Father in me is not talking about essential unity, but it is talking about relational unity, that because I am related to the Father and the Father is related to me and we are in close harmony, I am doing these works consistent with the Father's plan, which is what we studied at the time when we went through that particular verse. Another example is John 16, 33. Jesus says, These things, that is the doctrine that I have taught you, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. Now, if this were talking about simply positional relationship with Jesus, then that would mean that once you're saved, you always have peace and stability and tranquility and harmony in your soul. No, no, the, the, the smirks on your face make it clear to me you understand the point. This in me is not talking about our positional relationship in John's use of this phrase. It's talking about fellowship, the consequences of fellowship and walking in close relationship with Jesus. Another example is in John 17:25. Jesus is praying in his high priestly prayer that they may all be one, even as you, Father, thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be in us, and that the world may believe that thou didst send me. And in verse 22, And the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. And then in John 17:23, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be perfected, that is, matured in unity, that the world may know that thou didst send me and didst love them even as thou didst love me. Now, the point I want to make here is simple. If in me is positional reality for John, then Jesus would not be praying for it to be brought about. It would not be potential. It would be actual. It would have already existed from salvation onward. So the conclusion that we must take from this is that in me is not legal, positional, i.e. phase one salvation. It is a relational term. That's our first clue to interpreting this passage. That when Jesus says, every branch in me, he is talking about having that relationship of fellowship. He is not talking about 
entering into salvation. The next thing we need to look at is the word fruit. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. This is the Greek word karpos, which could be translated fruit. But I prefer the term production because that's what it signifies. The production in the life of the believer. Production in the spiritual life is always related to character, not activity. It's not prayer, witnessing, giving, reading your Bible. It is being transformed internally by the Word of God. So, fruit then is not external activity, but internal character transformation. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, that does not produce divine good. Now, we're going to stop right there, and we need to shift down to verse 5, or verse 4. Because the other key word that we have to understand in this text is found in the command of four. Abide in me and I in you. What does it mean to abide in Christ? What is that word? Well, the Greek word here is meno. It's a very common word used throughout the, uh, the scriptures. And the English word means to put up with, to tolerate. Second meaning is to wait patiently for something. Third meaning is to be in store for something, to await something. Fourth, it means to withstand. It's used intransitively, to remain in place, to continue, to be sure or firm, to endure, to dwell, to sojourn. This is taken from the American Heritage Dictionary. The Greek word has basically the same meaning, range of meaning. In the Gospel of John, meno means to remain. to reside, to continue, to endure. It's used in 132, 138-39, through 39, and in 2.12 as some examples. Now, one verse where this is used is very important for its understanding, and that's in John 6.56. Why don't you turn there? Because we'll need to look at the context a little bit. John chapter 6, verse 56. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, abides in me, and I in him. Now, I don't have time to deal with all the stuff related to eating and drinking the flesh and the blood of Christ here as I did when we went through that passage, but this was imagery. Jesus had just said, I am the bread of life. That's imagery. He's using metaphor. He's not talking literally about literal eating, literal drinking. This is not the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. Jesus is using a metaphor. Now, why does he use the eating and drinking metaphor? He uses that metaphor because every single person can do that. It's not based on intelligence. It's not based on background. It's not based on culture. Every human being has the ability to eat and drink. So we can say then that eating and drinking are non-meritorious acts that anyone can perform. They're means to an end. They are used... For it to signify something specifically. They're non-meritorious acts, so we can say, point two, that eating and drinking mean to accept something. We accept something into our body, into our system. 
Eating and drinking mean to accept something, to appropriate something. In the initial act of salvation, it refers to that initial act of being nourished by our Lord at the point of faith alone in Christ alone. So when Jesus says, in verse 56, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, that is referring to faith in Christ at salvation. Now let me substantiate that a minute. Go back and look at verse 53. Verse 53, Jesus said therefore to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourself. Now this is where little knowledge of the original language is and Greek grammar pays off. In verse 53, what you have is aorist, active, subjunctives. The aorist tense is indicate, summarizes everything as one event, as focusing on it as a specific decision. The subjunctive mood indicates potentiality. The indicative mood is reality. Subjunctive mood is potentiality. It depends. It's potential. It depends upon your volition whether or not you will eat or drink. The eating and drinking refer in the aorist tense to that point in time when you trust Christ as Savior. When you get down to 56, eating and drinking are no longer in the aorist subjunctive. They become present participles, which indicates continuous action. So, verse 56 is talking about the continual nourishment on Christ as necessary for spiritual growth. It is verse 53 that focuses on that initial nourishment at the point of trusting Christ as our Savior. So, let's summarize that in terms of a couple of points. Point three, eating and drinking are present active participles in verse 56, whereas the verb meno in verse 56, to abide, is a present active indicative. Now, I'm going to make a point out of that. Sometimes this gets pretty technical, but I'm telling you the problems that we're trying to resolve are significant. Now, point four. John 6.53 describes, through the use of the aorist active subjunctives, the initial appropriation of eternal life. Now, if you put that together, you come to the conclusion that John 6.56 uses present active participles to indicate continuous action. So Jesus is saying, whoever continues to be nourished by me, minnow, stays, remains in close fellowship to me. Now, if abide, I'll say this about four times now, if abide means to believe, as some people argue it does, if abide means the same as accepting Christ as Savior, then we have a redundancy in 56. Because if he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood means to accept Christ as Savior, and abide means to accept Christ as Savior, then what that verse is saying is, he who accepts Christ as Savior accepts Christ as Savior. Point six. Conclusion. If eating and drinking are the metaphor describing belief, then meno must mean something beyond initial saving faith. Therefore, faith cannot be equated to remaining. Faith is not the same thing. 
Meno doesn't mean to believe, to accept Christ as Savior. Point seven. Even though someone believes in Christ and currently maintains a close relationship with Him, the indication here is that the potential remains to discontinue that fellowship. If true belief prevented breaking fellowship, there would be no need to command them to abide. That's the point. Now, what does that mean? See, if the opposing position that this is, argues that this is talking about genuine faith versus false faith or pseudo-faith, but if that were the case, then what they're really arguing is that true belief means that you automatically abide. But if true faith means you automatically abide, why command people to abide? You command people to abide only if the potential is there for them to break fellowship and stop abiding. Point eight. A believer remains in Christ's love by obeying commandments, such as abide in Christ. If abide means to accept Christ as Savior, the conclusion is that salvation would be by works. Because in John 15, 9 and 10, Jesus is saying that the one who loves me keeps my commandments. Let's read the verse. John 15, 9 and 10. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So that would mean, if, if, if abiding is faith, then that would mean if you keep my commandments, you believe in my love. That would end up making it a work salvation. And point nine, if abide means to believe, then Jesus' statement in 15.5 becomes absurd. It would then be read as, Let's read it as it is. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him. Let's translate that. If abide means believe, then that would read, He who believes in me and I believe in him. Why would Jesus want to believe in me? (laughs) See, abide means relationship. Fellowship. Not salvation. So, when we look at this, we see that the substance of John 15 is to talk about how the believer is to have a life of fellowship and the importance of that life of fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So what then are the conditions for fellowship with Christ? First of all, you have to enter into union with Christ. Faith alone in Christ alone initiate salvation and we begin that salvation in fellowship with the Lord. But we can break fellowship through sin. Sin grieves the Holy Spirit and quenches the Holy Spirit. So that restoration to fellowship is through 1 John 1.9. See, Christ already paid the penalty for the sin. But when we sin, there is experiential disobedience in our life and we have to deal with it as God says to, and it's simply by admitting our sin to God. It doesn't involve penance. It doesn't involve emotion. It doesn't involve feeling sorry for your sin. It just involves a simple process of admitting to God the sin in your life. And God forgives us. In fact, the words that are used in the Psalms are words like, Admit, acknowledge my sin to thee. Third characteristic of fellowship with the Lord and abiding is the continuous application of the new commandment we studied in John 13, 34, and 35 in comparison with John 2.10, that the believer is to love one another. 1 John 2.10 says, The one who loves his brother abides in the light. See, there's our word. Fellowship is related to the application 
of impersonal love or unconditional love for all mankind. The royal law of love that we've spent so much time studying. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. Point four. The fourth condition for fellowship or continuous abiding with Christ is walking in dependence upon God the Holy Spirit following the precedent set by the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 2.6 says, The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk, that walk is a metaphor for living, ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. 1 John 1.7 says, But for if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. And Ephesians 5.8 says, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light, positioned in Christ. You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So we continue fellowship by walking as Christ walked. And that walk is a walk in dependence upon God the Holy Spirit, which was the precedent that He set. But I say walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not fulfill, carry out, bring to completion the desire of the flesh. And in Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by means of the Spirit. Fifth characteristic of continuous abiding with the Lord is having our minds saturated with Bible doctrine, the Word of God, the commandments that God has revealed. 1 John 2.14, I have written to you, fathers, because you know Him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. And the Word of God abides in you. That's the key. The Word of God has to dwell, abide. You have to have that relationship with the Word of God continuously. And the result, you have overcome the evil one. 1 John 2.17 And the world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God. How do you know the will of God to do the will of God? By learning the Word of God. You learn the Word of God first, then you can apply it. So you can only do the will of God if you've learned the Word of God under the filling of the Spirit of God. And that is related to your continuous abiding. 1 John 3.24 says, And the one who keeps his commandments abides in him. So fellowship is related to continuous obedience. We abide in him and he in us. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. So there is the relationship there between the filling of the Holy Spirit and the abiding in relationship and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Sixth characteristic of abiding is that the one who abides does not depart from the doctrine taught from the beginning. See, there's no additional revelation to the New Testament in time. You know, you didn't need Muhammad to come along and give the Koran. You didn't need Joseph Smith to come along and give the Book of Mormon. You didn't need Mary Baker Glover Patterson Eddy to come along and give the science of the Scriptures because Revelation, the Scripture says, is complete in Christ. He is the highest expression of Revelation. So John says in 1 John 2.24, As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. That is the doctrine of the New Testament. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide, that is, be in fellowship with the Son and in the Father. And then seventh, John mentions confession, which means to admit, 
publicly admit Christ as Savior. 1 John 4.15 Whoever confesses, that is to admit or acknowledge Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. Abiding is fellowship. So Jesus says in John 15, I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me, that is, every believer that continues in fellowship with me, who wants to have a relationship with me, but does not bear fruit, He takes away. He's going to lift it up. God is going to work in your life to produce fruit. He's going to bring whatever it takes to lift you up, to encourage you, to strengthen you. That's the picture here. So that you can produce fruit. And then every branch that does bear fruit, that grows to maturity and produces fruit, God's going to prune it. That's through discipline, through suffering, through adversity. God is going to bring to bear in our life, just as you cut back the plant so that it puts all of its energy into fruit bearing and isn't distracted by other things. That's what I learned a long time ago with tomato plants. They put out all kinds of suckers, and you have to cut those lower branches off so that it will put all of its energy into fruit bearing and not get distracted into all of these other branches and leaves. That's what happens in our lives. We get distracted with all kinds of wonderful, fun, enjoyable things to do in life. But God wants to prune us and give our focus on the purpose for which He saved us, which is to bear fruit. So He will prune it for the purpose of it bearing more fruit. So that is our goal, is fruit production. It comes from first learning the Word of God under the filling of the Spirit of God, and then we can glorify God with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for Your Word that it clarifies for us our goal, Your goal, Your plan, Your purposes for our lives. That Your Word is eternal, Your Word is inerrant, and Your Word is infallible. Father, we pray right now that if there's anyone here that is uncertain of their eternal destiny, unsure of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to resolve the most important of all issues and make the most important decision of their life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. The only way to have eternal life is through faith alone in Christ alone. That Jesus Christ, the Scripture says, went to the cross, was buried, rose the third day according to the Scriptures. And that is the Gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved just takes a decision in a moment of time to determine eternal destiny. Now, Father, we thank You for what we have learned in Your Word. We pray that You would continuously remind us through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit of these things and challenge us with them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.